Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sophia. I'm Will, and today we're thrilled to have David Frum with us. David is a Canadian-American political commentator and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush and has worked at the American Enterprise Institute and for Rudy Giuliani's presidential bid. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and also a CNN contributor. His latest book, Trumpocracy, explains why President Trump has undermined our most important institutions in ways even the most critical media has missed. And a fun fact, my father and I bought one of its first copies by attending a live David Frum event where the book was on sale before it had hit the shelves in stores. Thank you so much for joining us, David. It's a pleasure. Um, one of the questions we like to ask our guests is to talk about an inflection point, so a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share one of these moments with us? Um, I'll share one. Um, it's the great economic crisis of 2008, 2009. Um, all the world around me seemed to collapse economically, and it forced me to rethink a lot of the beliefs I'd had over the past quarter, previous quarter of a century. Um, since 1982, when I graduated from college, there had not been a serious recession or a serious inflation in the United States. Now suddenly we we're facing a 1930-style calamity. And as I watched this, I realized um, a lot of the beliefs I brought to this moment were not adequate to this moment. They'd been adequate to the past, but not adequate to this moment. Um, and I had to do some rethinking. That led me to some different kinds of directions, which in turn led me to another inflection point, which is you mentioned, you mentioned that I'd worked at the AEI um, in 2010. I was sacked from it for some of the things I'd written. And, um, and that in turn sent me in, in, in a way – um, in a new direction. It was quite a liberating experience. So you mentioned that economic crisis as one point where your ideological development really pivoted. Another, even earlier in your life that you've spoken about in public before, is reading Gulag Archipelago yeah, as so you were a 14-year-old child, I, was, I, I was a teenager. So I, um, the very first political campaign I ever worked on was in the uh, southwest corner of uh, Toronto, Canada. Uh, I lived in um, the north, and so I had to take a bus, a subway, and then a streetcar uh, to get to the political campaign. And on, my mother had given me as a gift a copy of the Gulag Archipelago, and I read it to and from on this long ride. And um, I had started sort of interested in the political left, and by the end of the book, I wasn't anymore. So would you pinpoint your conservatism as reactionary, or was that just sort of a jumping-off point for you? No, I, my conservatism was very much a product of my times. Um, I think it's still true that people graduated from college in the early 1980s are the most Republican group in the electorate because we were aware and impressionable during the crisis of the 1970s, the, the Carter administration, inflation, high interest rates, high unemployment, um, the Soviet Union seemingly on the rampage, America lo losing its way, crime, disorder. And we were also still young and impressionable when Ronald Reagan took the country in a, in a different and better course. And those experiences marked us. Claremont has a great institute study of Machiavelli. There's a line of Machiavelli's, which I'll simplify a little bit, that says, this is the tragedy of a man. The times change and he does not. And the challenge for those of us who came of age at that time is to understand that what, that what we believed then was true for then, but the world changed and it doesn't remain true forever. Last night, you compared the current political moment and President Trump's rise to drifting into oncoming traffic. Yes. For someone who says that uh, your upbringing and the moment in which you uh, come to understand politics is what defines your politics, how do you still have hope for a future conservative movement if you really believe the current embodiment of the Republican Party is so dire? Well, I, I think the conservative movement as I knew it is, is really a finished project. Um, it, it doesn't have anything useful 
um, to say to the present moment. And Donald Trump, the fact that it can support Donald Trump as enthusiastically as it does, that, that is a sign not only of intellectual but of moral bankruptcy. But what's going to come out of that, the conservative disposition, the conservative impulse, that, that will always be part of the human brain. And uh, there will be things to rummage through in the conservative legacy that will have value for the future in much the way that you know the capital P progressives of the before the First World War left things that were of value for the future even after they went extinct, and the Whigs left things that were of value for the future even after they went extinct. Um, it becomes kind of a, an attic of ideas to use in, in the new political movements. But I think the Trump presidency, if the United States gets through, through it as a functioning democracy, which is an open question because democracy is under attack as never before, but if it gets through as a functioning democracy, we are going to see a very different world from the world we've seen over the past 25 years. It's just amazing, actually, how, how stable and unchanging um, American politics has been really since the Reagan era. But before that, there were dramatic changes all the time. And I think the Trump era marks an end of um, a certain kind of party system. I mean, it's just not going to work to go on in the 2020s um, pretending that you believe in the policies of the 1980s while actually participating in a cult of one of the most unfit, if not the very most unfit man ever to hold the office of the presidency of the United States. So do you think that this revolution of the Republican Party or evolution into something new, um, as you're describing, requires a certain type of leadership or a certain type of um, embodiment of those values? And what would that look like? Um, Republicans are very consumed with the problems of leadership. Uh, whenever you talk to a Republican gathering, um, they will always say, who should be our leader? Who should be the president? And I try to reason with them that the, the Republican problem is not a who, but a what. Um, what answers? Uh, you, um, what answers? I, I, one of the, it's, you know, political leadership, I've, I've worked with a lot of politicians. I have tremendous respect for what they do. But you also need to understand the limits. A politician is like a movie star. A politician, a great one, has an ability to project personality through a camera to people who've never met him or her and make them feel that this person cares about them and in some way draw energy and, and inspiration for those people. But we don't ask a movie star also to write the movie and also to direct the movie and also to produce the movie. It's, it's hard enough to be a movie star. And in the same way, to be a great politician is a very difficult thing. They are not going to, it's not their job to find the answers. One more thing about this. Um, polit successful politicians are more like artists than they are like intellectuals. They don't think logically. Um, it's, and I don't say that as a criticism. It's the same way I don't, it's not a criticism of an artist to think they don't think logically. They think in other ways that are as important as logic. So they need people around them who are policy analysts and intellectuals and lawyers who do think logically, who can give them the content that the politician then rearranges into, into new ways. Um, this is the thing that is missing in the Republican world. It just keeps offering answers that are so old that they don't meet the questions of today. Yeah. So. Um, this idea of surrounding yourself with people who can sort of direct, produce, manage, um, I think really speaks to your experience as a speechwriter. Um, and I'm wondering, like, if you could speak a little bit to your experience speechwriting for George Bush. Yeah, I, I don't think specifically here of speechwriters is the most important at all. And I wrote speeches for President Bush for two years, but I didn't have much of a, a career uh, as a speechwriter. I think um, partly because of the influence of all of those Aaron Sorkin movies, a lot of people really exaggerate the importance of speech writing as an activity. Because one of the things that happens in those movies is the politician you know, gives the big speech. 
in the inspirational movement music swells and then we cut to the uh, the tv sets all over the nation where americans slowly stop what they're doing they put down the ironing they put down, they they hold the baby they stop cooking dinner and they listen except in real life they don't they keep ironing they keep holding the baby they keep making dinner um, politicians like to think of words as magic uh, they aren't. Um, you can be as inarticulate as Dwight Eisenhower, and if you deliver peace and prosperity, um, that, that's the best argument of them all. To return to your feelings in the Republican Party specifically, you said it's not a question of who, but instead a question of what. And for you, the what, in some basic sense, has still remained to be the Republican Party. Some of our conservative professors at Claremont McKenna have renounced their membership of the Republican Party, become independents. You notably haven't. You're right. still a card-carrying member. I think the Republican Party is a permanent fact, and the conservative movement is not. Um, in, uh, the Republican Party is an institution, and it will be here for a long time to come. It will just take on new content. Um, and it's true that the people who are running it are behaving in not in ways that it's difficult to respect, but they have the excuse of being a political party. The conservative intellectuals have behaved worse for the most part, and they have no excuse. Now, I, I think the Republican – I think that people are making just a, a – a, a, showing a, a lack of understanding of how political change comes. The party is a fact. The conservative movement is a, is a, um, a sequence of events across time that uh, will be left behind. Is there any point at which you think that uh, we'd pass a bright line at which you'd want to renounce your membership of the Republican Party, even if you think it's inevitable that you wouldn't want to be associated with it? Well, one of the, the um, powerful things about um, the American party system is people remain affiliated with parties. They don't have to vote necessarily. So you know, I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016. And if the Republican Party renominates him in 2020, um, I won't vote for him again. But let's remember this is a federal system. And so here we are in the beautiful state of California, a one party state. Um, California needs a functioning Republican Party. So does New York State. Um, I, what has happened is the greatest censors of knowledge production and wealth production in the United States are becoming one-party states that can't function. Um, there was a story just, I don't know when you're releasing this, but a few days ago um, in the New York Times about how New York City is building subways at a cost triple those of Paris. So that's what I mean, that's the job. That's why you need effective center-right parties is to make government work effectively because parties of the left can be captured by their constituencies. So I'm I'm for that. If I were if I lived in California, um, I would be a very active member of the Republican Party. What is maddening to me here in California is Republicans have just given up on competing. That they want to be cultural warriors. Um, they they want to they want to do um, uh, they want to create. Uh, they're like yippies from the 1960s. They want to create events and provocations. They don't actually want to capture seats in the state assembly. But capturing seats in the state assembly is what politics is all about. Last night, you mentioned that one of your fears for whatever the conservative movement is now, even if it's not what it was before, is that conservatism in the United States might descend into a place where it's strictly a realm of cultural criticism and that it doesn't actually have any intent to govern or win elections. Yes. And at the same time, you said that the most effective movement in your lifetime was Mothers Against Drunk Driving and yes. that the future of the gun reform movement as you see it is an apolitical, cultural one similar yeah. to temperance. Yes. When do you think it's appropriate for movements to be apolitical and when should they try to govern? Um, they should. Uh, that's an a excellent question, a very powerful one. And I would say the answer is when they have one thing they want to do. Um, if what you want to do is, is um, reduce drunk driving, then you have to say, and, and beyond that, you know, I work with everybody. Um, and I will talk to Republicans. I will talk to Democrats. As John McCain used to say, I'll talk to libertarians. I will talk to vegetarians. I will talk to anybody who will work with me on my 
drunk driving reforms. Um, and I will work not only I will work outside the political system. I will work with culture, cultural institutions. I will work with uh, TV comedy shows. They stop presenting drunk driving as funny. Um, and, and that is, I think, the change that needs to come with guns is that um, we need um, a cultural wake up so that people understand I am not being a good parent if I keep a gun in the house. I'm a bad parent if I keep a gun in the house. Um, but the conservative world was not a, was not a single issue. It was a way of thinking about politics. And there's I want to distinguish again between conservatism as a way of being um, conservatism as an archive of ideas. But. Um, I, I, I look at this, I mean, I think the best analogy to the conservative movement is the capital P progressive movement before the First World War. Um, and it had a series of instincts and intuitions, many of which made America, change America for the better. Um, very, you know, it was, it was above all committed to integrity in local government and weeding out uh, machine politics. But it turned out that, uh, that it had limits. Uh, it had blind spots, and it turned out a lot of even its best ideas had un, uh, unintended consequences. So after the progressive movement, American cities were run in a much more professional way than they had been before the progressive movement. But the American party system never recovered from it because uh, when you broke Tammany Hall, you broke actually an important institution that had made 19th century America what it was, and 20th century America has often missed Tammany Hall. Um, and, the conservative, and, and so we value some of their contributions. We criticize others, but we also say, and, and and parts of the capital P progressive movement remain in American culture to this day. When we talk about applying science to public policy problems, we are using, reusing their ideas. But it would be weird uh, to walk around American life and say, I am a progressive in the same way that um, Lincoln Steffens was a progressive 110 years ago. You're someone who has been very openly critical of the conservative of the conservative movement and the Republican Party, um, and you touched on that by describing when you left AEI. Mm -hmm. um, what would your advice be for people who are interested in politics or government or who are currently in it about um, being afraid of how voicing your opinions might impact your career? Well, um, voicing your opinions will impact your career. I mean, that's just a fact, um, and. Uh, if you're afraid of it, then you should have fewer opinions. But um, if you're going to have opinions, then you have to take the risks. Um, we, we live in a free country. Nothing worse can happen to you than uh, no one's going to arrest you or shoot you. Um, you, you may lose jobs. You may lose friends. Um, that's, some, that's the price of standing up for things that are important to you and, you, and you accept that. But my main advice to young people of conservative outlook and disposition and who, don't, who look at the, the left, especially the horrifying um, authoritarian uh, campus left and say, oh, that's not for me. So I would beseech them, um, learn from facts, learn from your environment. That one that uh, there's a kind of, if I may say, Talmudic quality to modern conservatism, where people will rummage through ancient texts for the answers to questions, when the qu answers are all around you. Learn from your world, not from a, a vanished world. So you mentioned uh, that the effect of the, as you see it, increasingly authoritarian tendencies of campus liberalism yeah. uh, is having on young conservatives. And last night you said at the Athenaeum that when you talk to young conservatives, you find they're more and more focused on these cultural criticism issues yeah. and radicalized by these things. 
do you think that those two things go hand in hand and that one is a result of the other? Or do you think there's fundamentally something in the conservative genome, irrespective of how it's interacting with liberals? No, no I, think, I think because so much of the conservative movement among the young is formed on campus, there's a react uh, the, the, the campus left sort of sets the agenda and a lot of and the conservative world reacts or the young conservative world reacts. But um, and that's maybe inevitable. And a lot of it, it um, and it's it's hard. I mean, when when uh, uh, I I absolutely see the logic why why people who are told that it is fascist to say things like um, women have uteruses, then turn around and say, right, my answer to that is I'm going to bring Milo to campus. You know, I'll give you something to be upset about. Um, I, I see how that sick dynamic takes hold. Um, what, and here's then what doesn't happen is that while you have this gesture politics, this politics of symbolism, this politics of culture, is, you know, is Black Panther the greatest work of all time or is it, you know, or not? I mean, what is not happening is that young people are not knocking on doors, volunteering for campaigns and affecting the way their world is governed. Um, that they are engaging in gesture politics that are of interest to very few people and that have then this mutually radicalizing tendency. Um, whoever is shouting down speakers on campus is losing. Um, this happened the other day to my dear friend, Christina Summers, who went to Lewis and Clark in Portland um, and was shouted down. And, and, the only, and if I, I, I haven't recently been shouted down on campus, but I would always say the, my assumption, I would say that, is I understand what you're afraid of. You're afraid that, that I am so convincing that if anybody heard me, they would realize that I am right and you are wrong. And that's why you must shout and I, and I need only talk. Um, so it has, it has a radicalizing effect on people. But you cannot let your opponents make your politics for you. Um, you know, you cannot, um, you can, if you are reactive, then you are always a secondhand person. You are always somebody else's follower. So do you think that as college students are caught up in this symbolism is the correct path then to enact real change, to focus on more grounded domestic issues? Yeah. Go. Uh, um, I think one, one of the things we need to learn from the Trump era and especially, I, and this is advice, by the way, for liberal minded students, because one of the things that was really disturbing to me was how young liberals fell into thrall with Bernie Sanders. Here's another person who obviously should not be president of the United States, who obviously shouldn't be president of a glee club. Um, and, uh, and, and they created, they, they made this unlikely person a messiah. And that just tells you how much, how hungry you must be for a messiah figure. If you can believe that Larry David's unfunny cousin, that he's the messiah. Um, and I, I think that's, you need to regain the democratic impulse. Um, now there's, there's a famous loyalty oath in medieval Spain that one of the kingdoms, the, the, uh, the military, the uh, local aristocracy would swear to their king. And they would swear to him, we who are no worse than you, swear to you who are no better than we to follow you so long as you obey our laws. And if not, not. That's the attitude of a republic to its leadership. Um, you don't, there is no one who's going to save you. You have to save yourself. Obviously, uh, lots of people look to Bernie Sanders as a messiah for the left. Lots of people look to Donald Trump as a messiah for the right. There were even some messiah tendencies in the Democratic Party for Barack Obama, but I don't yeah. think even his speechwriters saw George W. Bush as much of a political messiah. Why now? Why this change in American politics? Because we, um, as I mentioned in the, in the talk last night, we are living in an era in which people are really losing faith in democracy. Um, and they are losing the taste for participation. 
Um, democracy means meetings. Democracy means committees. Um, and democ democracy means learning to work with others who in many ways irritate you. Um, and people in de I decreasingly want to do that. And they have forgotten what the alternatives were. Are World War II, the Cold War, long ago, Nazism and communism are are dead, and not only dead, buried, decomposed. Um, I mean, they, they they sometimes they send up a kind of zombie hand through the soil, but they're not they're not real forces. Um, modern authoritarian movements are not ideological; um, they they are simply authority for its own own sake. And so, I think that you are seeing in young people who live in a world in which. Um, which has never been better at identifying and catering to individual tastes, a distaste for the kind of thing that um, former activists once did. Um, you know, one of the things that is striking about the campus is the um, flourishing, what I call the ASA politics, you know, at, um, as a cishet uh, male of pallor, I say. Um, and of course, the whole point to Democratic politics is you have to work with you have to build coalitions because the world uh, to get to fifty percent plus one you have to work with a lot of people who are not like you. Um, it could if you're fifty percent plus one. I mean, if you're a fit women's movement, you're going to need at least one man to get to fifty percent plus one, <laughs> and vice versa. Um, and that that is the um, that is why institutions like in their time jury duty, trade unions. Uh, parent-teachers associations, Rotary, these are the indispensable elements of democracy because it's where people learn in non-political ways how to do democratic politics. As we have fallen away from those, we have such an individualized experience with every other aspect of life that we think our politics can be individualized too, and that's the one place that never can be, not at least at least as long as, long as you remain a democracy, it can't. We've time left for only one more question, which is the last question we ask all of our guests. What's your personal definition of success, and how would you help students define success for themselves and achieve it? My personal, uh, I noticed that as we walked into this studio that we we're beside the Czesław uh, Milos Institute, a great, great writer who had a huge influence on me. Um, I'm going to quote one of his friends, Milan Kundera, um, a great Czech writer, who said that my definition of success is to live in truth, um, not to tell lies, um, and not to be party to lies. But that definition of success, it comes with certain rewards, but it doesn't come with all the rewards. Um, and so I, I would, what I would say to younger people is, as you choose your path, and as you choose your definition of success, success um, remember the words of the New Testament where Jesus talks about those who ostentatiously pray in public. And he says, they get their reward. And that the reward is on earth, not in heaven, is his meaning. And the point is that every path, um, so much of, um, so much of our approach to life is that we want all the rewards. We want both the rewards that come from um, doing the wrong thing, and we want the rewards that come from doing the right thing. And so often you hear people who have um, the proceeds of doing the wrong thing, whether it's money or fame, then wanting um, to be able to sleep well at night, wanting integrity, wanting to be admired. So no, that those those are special rewards that come from special kinds of activities. Um, so, um, except you can't have everything, and then choose your path. But um, I think at the en end of it all, um, when you look back, that the ability to have and to give love among your intimates, and to know that you your conscience lies easy, 
that is the kind of success that at the end of life, you can take to the grave with you in contentment. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.